So when I go to the barn, I think, yeah, smells like horse poop. And she goes to the barn and she thinks, ah, horse poop. So not that banjos are anything like horse poop. I don't think that. (laughs) Greetings, everybody. Welcome and thank you for joining me for another episode of the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. For those of you who are new listeners, my name is Keith Billick. I'm the one who travels around with a bunch of microphones and tries to find banjo players in their natural habitat and make them discuss banjos and then put it out to the world for all of you to listen to. And so that's what I'm doing here. And we have actually wrapped up on this series of Delfest interviews, and we are now making our way to this year's Midwest Banjo Camp for another round of banjo player wisdom and stories and you know all all the other things that you've come to expect from the show before we do that as always we need to give a special thanks to the patreon supporters and specifically the featured supporter of this show and that's shad williams shad thank you so much for signing up over on patreon.com slash banjo podcast and becoming a supporter of the show i really appreciate it it truly helps and i definitely couldn't do it without you to become a patreon supporter yourself please head over once again to patreon.com slash banjo podcast you'll figure out how to support the show and how to receive amazing rewards in return for your generosity one of the rewards is that you will get invited to monthly vip meetups with uh, yours truly as and all the other very important pickers. And that is a monthly video meetup where we talk banjos, what else? And, you know, share stories, share advice, share tips, recommendations, uh, what, whatever we think of. It's a pretty... It's a pretty relaxed atmosphere, but always plenty of banjo talk and lots of fun. And this month's VIP lounge uh, was just scheduled for Monday, September 19th at 7 p.m. Eastern Time. So hopefully you're listening to this in time to uh, to meet up with me and your fellow, fellow listeners on Monday the 19th. So one more time, patreon.com slash banjo podcast. Speaking of meeting up with me, I will be on the move in, uh, in the next few weeks. Uh, the first place I will be going is the IBMA convention, the International Bluegrass Music Association down in Raleigh, North Carolina. And I'll, I'll be down there for the whole week. You can come see me and my good buddy, Daniel Patrick, who hosts the Mandolins and Beer podcast. We will be posted up at booth 532 of the exhibit hall all week. And I'll be there and come say hi, get your free sticker. You will be able to purchase your official Picky Fingers t-shirts. And we've all seen all sorts of photos of the cool kids wearing those t-shirts. So, so come get your own. You can find more information about that at ibma.org. And the week after that, I will be headed to one of my favorite music camps. That's the Great Lakes Music Camp uh, from October 6th through 9th. And that is on the shores of beautiful Lake Michigan. And I'll be teaching some banjo alongside an all-star cast of other instructors. It really is quite amazing. So check that out at greatlakesmusic.org. Otherwise, my ears are always open, and by ears, I mean inbox. You can email me at pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com with any other suggestions, comments, or concerns. No 
Today's featured guest is Scott Anderson, a Florida-based banjo player from the bands Medicine Springs and the Scott Anderson Band. He has also toured internationally with Jim Hurst and plenty of other big-time acts. Now, in addition to being a fantastic player in his own right, he is also involved in the banjo world in a whole bunch of other ways. He was a frequent contributor to the banjo newsletter, writing interviews and features. He is active in the banjo collectors scene and knows a lot about Gibson pre-war banjos, which we chat about. And last but not least, he is an educator teaching lessons and teaching at music camps, which is where I got to catch up with him at this year's Midwest Banjo Camp. So give a warm picky fingers welcome to Scott Anderson. in Placa, Florida, which is not a hotbed of banjo players and bluegrass necessarily. Um, though when I was, uh, you know, pretty young, it was, uh, there were shows around and festivals and actually the first bluegrass festivals in Florida were in a little town called Laudy, about an hour from Placa. So it was fairly convenient. I got interested. My mom and dad were from Southwest Virginia, oh. very close to where Ralph Stanley's from, Ralph Stanley country for sure. Yeah. Um, and so they they love the music. Uh, my dad especially, you know, would buy buy the records and always play. You know, he's playing stuff going back to, you know, Bill and Charlie Monroe. You know, and then also of course Bill and the, and his Bluegrass Boys and and a lot of a lot of Stanley Ralph Stanley the Ralph early Carter, traditional stuff. Yeah, all that cool. Uh, and Flat and Scruggs, and of course also at that time, Beverly Hills Hillbillies was uh-huh. on TV. So which. You know, we we would watch. I guess it, I can't remember if it was actually on network TV at the time, or it was already in reruns. But I certainly saw it a lot and got to hear Earl's banjo. Right. You know. So it sounds like it was just ar- around you. You probably don't have a memory of like the first time you heard a banjo. It was. Just, it sounds like it was just always there. Yeah. For me, it's not. I, I don't really have that. I don't. I just remember it always being there. I do. You know, remember at least those couple examples. Specific songs, you know, the Ballad of Jane Cl- Jed Clampett being on on the TV show, yeah. and uh, and also, um, you know, somewhere around there, a little, uh, I guess, like early seventies, I guess, is when the Bonnie and Clyde movie that came out. So okay. Foggy Mountain Breakdown, you know, being used as that theme song, and and that they played it on the radio, you know, just yeah, it was on, a hit. Yeah, it was a it was a big hit, and then also Deliverance came out, and Dueling Banjos again was being played on pop radio. So there, that was happening. And then in a little different vein, you know, not too much longer after that, I'd already been playing for a while, but, you know, Bernie Ledden, who's, off, who's from Gainesville, uh-huh. um, and I actually saw him just a month or two ago uh, down visiting some family. But he, um, you know, played was a founding member in the Eagles, and he played banjo on a lot of that stuff. Okay. Um, and my, my some, someone was asking me here, you know, at camp uh, yesterday or today, you know, just sort of a my opinion on who is the most, you know, like who is the most influential, or who is the second most influential banjo player uh-huh. ever. You know, I think we would all agree that Earl is the most influential. I would probably say Bela is probably number two. Yeah. Because without Earl, there would be no Bela. Right, probably right. playing banjo. But then I also rephrase the question a little bit, like who might be the most heard banjo player of all time? And, and and my idea is that it very well could be Bernie Ledden. 
Because t- take it easy. That would make how, sense. How long, how many times has that song been played on the radio all over the world? Eagles Greatest Hits was, is that the top selling album still? I it was, think it is. It's in the top five, if not. Yeah, yeah. I think it is the top seller still. I think Thriller, Michael Jackson's Thriller overtook right. it for a little while. But then I think the Eagles, you know, I think it kept going and they kept selling more, yeah. than, more than that one. So I think it probably is. Yeah, you, you, you could very well be right. And yeah. yeah, that's a good point. So let's back up, though. Uh, you mentioned that there was a, a relatively nearby Bluegrass Festival. Was that something that you attended when you were a kid? Yeah, I did. So, you know, my mom and dad about it found out about it. And this would have been, you know, I'm talking about probably... 1971 or two, most likely three. Uh, the festival started somewhere in the early 70s. I don't remember exact year. And mm-hmm. and actually, I didn't go to the first few. I, know, I remember that my mom and dad went to, you know, went several times. You know, for you know maybe the first year, two, three years. I forget. And I didn't want to go. I wasn't playing uh, anything yet. Yeah. So at that time, you know, I'm still, you know, nine, ten, eleven years old. And I didn't want to go, the, you know. <laughs> Just because it sounded boring or whatever? To... I guess. I was a kid and I didn't know. And, I, you know, so I'd talk them into letting me spend the night at my friend's house when they went to went to the music festival. And I've seen some of the, uh, you know, my they kept some of the uh, programs and the flyers oh, yeah. from those festivals. So I realized years later when what, I went back and looked at those. Yeah. So I missed what really would have been, you know, my only chance to have seen Lester Flat. Oh, wow. Uh, uh, Jimmy Martin played there. Bill Monroe played there. Yeah. I didn't see them. I got to see those guys later, but I never got another chance to see Lester Flatt. And uh-huh. he died, you know, not, I forget exactly when he died, but I never got to see him play. So I kick myself sometimes for being such a dumb kid. Yeah. Uh, but I did miss Probably that. wouldn't have remembered it too much anyway, if you if that was kind of your <laughs> attitude. I'm not you. sure. <laughs> you know, I might, I might not have, but I may, that may have also lit the spark in me a little earlier yeah. And happened. So by the time I was 12 years old, uh, I'd, I always liked music, and I and I decided I wanted a guitar for my birthday. So I, uh, my mom went out and found a really crummy, cheap guitar yeah. and bought that for me, and I started learning to play a little bit. And then by the time I was my next birthday, turning 13, I decided I, I always liked the sound of a banjo, and I decided I wanted mm. to play banjo, so I asked for that. Yeah. And she went out and found me a also a really cheap and crummy banjo and I started learning to play on that and devoted a lot more of my time after I got a hold of the banjo to banjo. I always played guitar along some but but I was definitely putting more energy into the banjo at that point. Were your folks musicians themselves or no. just fans? Uh, they all liked it. Uh, my dad could sing, which he would do for fun, but you know, never did it in front of people necessarily. Right. Uh, they didn't play any instruments. Uh, my brothers didn't really have two older brothers and they didn't play very much they made a little bit so i didn't have anyone in the house that was playing any idea what maybe gave you that extra motivation to actually take the step to seek out these instruments i'm not sure i'm I, i've sort of wondered that myself sometimes yeah. i'm not sure why i really have no idea yeah um because because my whole family loves music and they all like you know listen to it and you know Mm -hmm. would sing along and could carry tune and things like that but but they didn't ever go as far as really learning to play an instrument and uh you know going any further with it so how did you you know it sounds like you didn't have too many people around you to play with or maybe not even 
to teach you? How did how did you learn and how did you progress? Yeah, I didn't. So I had um, an elementary school. I think about fourth grade. I think is when I was probably twelve years old and got that first guitar. And our music teacher in school, you know, taught a little bit of basic guitar, uh, just in the regular classes, I think. Um, but then she also would, you know, offer you the chance, and maybe it was just a few that she thought were really interested or something. Uh, so I, rem- I remember that she had just a, maybe a couple guitar lessons with me, you mm-hmm. know, just after school. Um, I would stay and, and she would show me a few. And she did it, I think, just... I think it really was only just a couple times when uh-huh. she said, <laughs> I don't know if this was true or not exactly, but she said, you know, you already know as much as I do, so I can't really teach you anymore. And then when I got a hold of the banjo, um, there was a, a music store in town, and there was a guy that ran the store, owned the store, um, who was a, a good musician, mm-hmm. mostly a guitar player, but he played a little banjo and did teach beginning banjo lessons. So I had four lessons with him, I didn't go any further. He was, uh, this was after I'd already been playing a banjo for about a year. Okay. Um, using the Scruggs book. So I had the Scruggs uh-huh. book okay. on the record. So here's, so the the banjo, when my mom went out and found me that banjo that she bought for my birthday, it was, had belonged to some, uh, sh- at the school she worked at, one of the teachers had bought it for her son before, uh, and he lost interest and didn't play it. So my mom bought the banjo, which was an old, uh, Harmony banjo, I think is what it was. Okay. And the Earl Scruggs book and the instructional record that went along with it of yeah. Earl playing the examples in the book. Sure. Which were recorded by Bill Keith, by the way, on his little recorder. And the package deal was forty bucks for the whole <laughs> for the whole deal. Including the banjo? That was the banjo, the, <laughs> the book and the record. Yeah. So uh anyway, I remember always remember that number. <laughs> anyway, uh I probably I, the book was more valuable than the Banjo. It, yeah, it still is, I would say. But I, so I started working through the examples in the book and getting a hold of, uh, you know, had some of the records already, you know, my dad had already bought that had some of the songs in the book yeah. you know, that I could listen to to try to learn. But then I started making it a point to get a hold of more records that had more of those songs, yeah. you know, that Earl had in the book to listen to to try to learn. Learning from Tab, you know, is. It's helpful and it can speed things along, but I was never very good at just reading it, you know, especially the the timing, getting that right. It's and it's still it's way better, of course, you know this to to hear what you're trying to play. Yeah. You know, if you use the tab just to speed it along so you don't have to look for the notes quite as long, <laughs> you know, is is one thing, especially when you're learning. But um I always tell my students, you know, you know, be sure to try to listen to the song that you're trying to learn first, you know. Yeah. Any other players stick out in your mind? Obviously, it sounds like you had a, a good, healthy dose of uh, Scruggs to listen to, but were, the, were there other favorites of yours? Yeah. So, and I'll say one, one more thing about the, the banjo teacher uh-huh. that I had. You know, I took four lessons with him, and I didn't learn a whole lot necessarily about playing banjo songs or, or licks or things, that kind of thing. Mostly what he did for me, which, which I really needed, was cleaned up what I was doing, mainly by telling me this one thing. He says, you need to be try to make every note be a clear ringing tone hmm. because I was really sloppy. I was trying to play fast and keep up with what I heard on the records. Okay. And I could move my fingers pretty fast, but it was really sloppy. 
yeah. and nasty. So uh, he told what, me just that just like one a lot thing. of mishits with your picks. Yeah, and... just everything was sloppy. You know, mm-hmm. sliding and not hitting. You know, not having a good fretted position right behind the fret, and yeah, not not even as many mishits, but just not just not very clean. Yeah. Um, uh, anyway, so he did me a very big favor by by just telling me to do that, and I listened. So, so it wasn't uh, too much longer. I think again, my dad probably was was subscribing to the Bluegrass Unlimited magazine. Okay, you know, so I was looking through those and learning about the players and the bands and things like that. And I think I re- I think I saw in the classified ads uh, an ad for Bluegrass uh, for banjo newsletter. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. Yeah. I'm trying to learn to play banjo, so pretty early on, I started uh, subscribing to the magazine, and that's when I started. You know, I'd heard Flat and Scruggs, and I'd heard Ralph Stanley, and I'd heard, you know, a bunch of the guys on the records at least who had been playing with Bill Monroe. Mm-hmm. But then, when I started reading the Banjo Newsletter magazine, I started hearing about all of these other guys who whose names I had not known yet because they were either my dad hadn't bought the records or they were, you know. Way, based way out west or you know from florida or something like that so and what year would we be talking about by this time so like mid probably, 70s or late 70s we're probably now up to 78 9 right. somewhere in there yeah okay. um and one of the guys that uh that caught my attention early on so really what i was doing was uh you know, reading the magazine and reading album reviews and things like that, mm-hmm. that, that uh, Hub Nietzsche was writing in the magazine. Uh, a couple that I remember that was maybe the first ones, it was a guy named Bill Knopp. Still out in California, right? Really great player, put out some good records, um, and maybe still is recording. I'm, I haven't, I don't think he travels much anymore. But um, and then the other guy who ended up making a huge impact, uh, I think, on the way I thought about it and maybe the way I played was Alan Mundy. Hmm. Um, uh, banjo Sandwich, Alan's first banjo record, right? Uh, was come had come out somewhere around that time. I don't remember the year exactly, but I um, read about it and. And Hub would, you know, have articles, and I think Alan was already writing, uh, probably already writing his column. You know, he used to do a monthly column okay. back then, Monday's Morsels, and he would Ooh. have, you know, a lot of times it was something he had recorded, and he would have and have that tab in the in the uh, magazine. So, do you happen to remember offhand anything specific that you worked on from either Bill Knopf? Knopf's playing, or it's <laughs> kind of a mouthful. It's hard to say. <laughs> uh, or or Alan's columns, like maybe even that you still use in your playing, or yeah. So like I, I I remember that. Um, yeah, and I, a lot of things that I've learned uh, from Alan. You know, I still play. Uh, you know, at least a lot of it, or I still can play some of it the way yeah. he played it on the. Re- I shouldn't. I shouldn't say it that way. I can. I still try to play the same notes that he did. Okay. I'm not sure <laughs> anybody you. can play like Alan. Yeah. Um, because he's uh, so amazing, and just the way he thinks of things, and the and the notes he thinks of using are always so cool and different. But I, 
you know, also got a hold of the tablature. Alan had written out the tablature book for the for that record, um, and I started working on those, working through those, and learning as much of those as I could. So uh, anyway, I, I remember one. I think maybe one of the earliest ones that I tried to learn was his Blackberry Blossom he did on that record. Okay. Um, we'll see if I can. Maybe I can do at least one pass, pretty much like Alan did it back then. We'll see. So that kind of thing, you know, cool. yeah, that, that very kind Mundy-esque. Of, yeah, that kind of melodic playing was something I had not heard much of. So I think maybe, you know, I don't think my dad even had the Bill Monroe instrumentals record yet, hmm. which which was the one that included Bill Keith, Bill Keith playing right. uh, Sailor's Hornpipe and Devil's Dream. So I don't think I had heard. I think Alan was probably the first guy I heard playing that kind of stuff, playing you know, melodic, that really fiddly. Uh, kind of melodic sound and it was something really completely new and different to me and i really loved it yeah so so and then of course alan not only could he do that but he would uh you know play songs and tunes um in you know different keys without a capo you know he hmm. played you know in not just and i'm not talking about just c and d but he's playing songs out of f and b flat, b flat right. um and he would use a lot of uh, maybe not as much on that record, though he did use some different tunings on that record, you know, uh, also. So, uh, you know, I started and I sort of became an Alan Mundy nut, you know, yeah. really. He was one of mine. Uh, I've had a whole lot of band favorite banjo players, and I still do. But Alan was, you know, one of my earliest and biggest and uh, still is. He's, you know, yeah. he's still just a great player. And the way he thinks of things is really amazing. Yeah, that is really cool. Yeah. At, at what point did you uh, graduate to being able to play more professionally or with with groups? <laughs> Have I? I? As far as I know. <laughs> okay. Well, um, you know, when I was I was fourteen years old, I think I had my first paying gig. So there were some older guys that uh, my brother by this time was an attorney living in lake city florida which is not too far from from where i grew up and went to church with the with a fellow who was a fiddle player mm -hmm. and who had been putting together a band with this other uh another guy and they were gonna do a show some little show somewhere and it's in its old high school auditorium and found out i'm at me and so dragged me in as a banjo player mm -hmm. And I could play a little bit, so I'm, I guess I've been playing for, I was 14 years old, but but it's probably, you know, later on, you know, an older 14. So probably I was had been playing for a year and a half, maybe not quite two years, I think, by that time. And Still I, what, pretty green, though. Yeah. Still pretty green. You know, I could I could play through, uh, you know, most of what I need to do in a pretty scruggsy way at that point. Um, 
and they would feature me on things. I think I played Ruben, okay. you know, the detuned uh, Scruggs Ruben. Uh, seems like that was one that was sort of my my uh, showcase number, if I, rem- if okay. I remember right. Uh, and then I played, uh, had a few guys in my high school um, just in the next few years. So by the time I'm 15, 16, 17, um, I, there were a few guys in uh, my high school who didn't play a whole lot of bluegrass, but they could sort of keep up with some of it. And a lot of times it was, you know, the country tunes. It was playing, you know, Willie and Waylon kind of stuff that okay. they liked and, and me trying to uh, find some way to make the banjo work into that. Just finding anyone to not. play with at that point is, yeah. is probably like a yeah. great opportunity. Yeah, and it seems like seems like we sort of, and I hated doing it. You know, I really wanted to play bluegrass stuff. Oh. I really wanted to play more banjo centric stuff. Uh-huh. But to play with those guys, I had to tolerate. That. <laughs> so for a long time, I hated to hear all the, you know, Waylon Jennings and Willie Nelson and. And uh, all that kind of stuff that they love, George Jones and all that. I've really just <laughs> it just brought up the, the frustration yes, of, of thinking, dealing with it. <laughs> can't we play something with some banjo? Uh, but anyway, years later, I do I do like all of that stuff too. Yeah. Uh, but I used to sort of dread dread it. <laughs> mm-hmm. at, at some point, do you remember anything developing that you would identify as like your personal playing style? And were there any? Just like any skills that you were working on that helped you develop and advance as a player? Yeah, I think like you do, you take little bits and pieces. Hopefully you learn little things from every player that you listen to or everyone that you like and listen to much anyway. I know when I when I started to record some things, you know, on my own with bands, I tried to make a, a very intentional effort when I recorded a song to put something a little different in it, something hmm. something that was mine, hopefully. You know, um, even if it was a song that had been recorded before when I played my banjo solo, I tried to find a way, you know, to come up with something a little bit new, just, you know, one a lick or two yeah. or something that would make it sound so that I wasn't copying someone else. You know, it, even if you though, can think of any specific ones, I would love to hear like oh gosh, a, a real-life example of, of what you mean. Okay. Well, let me do. Um, so I'll think of. I'll think of one banjo tune. Maybe I can play it, or maybe I can't. Um, so there's one tune that I'm thinking of right now that uh, I played in a band called Endless Highway for a while um, with a friend of mine named Gabe Valla, great guitar player, singer, songwriter, who I still play with in another band called Medicine Springs. Mm-hmm. Um, a really good bass player named Mike Hyde. A uh, great mandolin player named Greg Turner, who had also played in the Bluegrass Parlor band with, uh-huh. uh, from based in Tampa years ago. But uh, Gabe came up with, with this chord progression one day as we're probably jamming at the Withlacoochee Festival because we did that a lot. That was sort of where that band formed. <laughs> Funny thing is that band actually formed Bowie Beach, who played you know later with Larry Cordell and you know, still plays around in Florida, but uh, actually was sort of put that band together and named the band and um he <laughs> this is funny to me still 
Bowie said, you know, as we're practicing one time, he says, oh, this is a great band. I really love this band. He says, the only way I would ever leave this band is if Alison Krauss gave me a call and needed a guitar player. <laughs> we thought that's great. And we went out and we played a gig. And the next week he got a call from Larry Stevenson and he left to go play with Larry Stevenson. Okay. So, <laughs> you, so you didn't hold him to it? <laughs> we didn't hold it to him, though I do remind him, you know, about every time I see him still. <laughs> I thought you said. Well, anyway. <laughs> uh, but back to back to this tune I'm thinking of. Um, Gabe come up came up and was playing this chord progression. He says, "Hey, you know, listen to these chords." So we started jamming a little bit on the progression, and then uh, so this is probably late '90s. I'm talking about playing with Endless Highway. So we played, pl you know, played it, and I don't know if we ever played it on stage, but we were sort of jamming, you know, at least over the chords. At some point, Mike, our bass player, had moved back to Mississippi. He was a furniture salesman, really, as a day job, and he went back to, for business reasons, left, and, and the band, uh, we, we sort of broke up at that point, split up. And, um, and for a little while, I didn't play very much, and then around 2000 or so, I really started wanting to play more, mm -hmm. you know, have a band again and play. And I had, uh, for a long time, sort of thought about recording a solo record, you know, just doing everything the way I wanted to, to do it, playing, picking all the songs and putting, putting you know, the people I wanted to have on a particular song together. And I had a friend who told me, you know, and I was sort of on the fence as to whether I should do it or not. And I had a friend who told me, he said, you know, if you don't do it, you're going to kick yourself for the rest of your life. Yeah. And I thought, you know what? I think he's right. Yeah. So I did it. And I called up uh, Scott Vestal, who had built his digital underground studios on the basement of his house mm -hmm. you know he had built uh, a, a really nice studio for recording bluegrass stuff you know with isolation for every instrument so the whole band could track together among other things among you know in addition to being one of the greatest banjo players who ever walked the of earth course, yeah. he was a great finnish carpenter carpenter he did that you know he was a mechanic at some point for a yeah, while i didn't realize that uh he can do anything uh He's a fantastic engineer behind the board. Yeah, you know if you're a if you're a banjo player uh, recording something, it is great to have Scott Vestal turning the knobs because it, I know he did this. You know when we were recording, uh, a lot of times you know I'd I'd take some pass at something uh, that I was trying to do, and I would say. Ah, let me you know let me do that again. I need to read that that part right there. And Scott said, I already fixed it. <laughs> you know, because he knows what it's supposed to sound like. Yeah. And, you know, if it was some little thing, maybe I'd already made two passes at it. Well, by the time I'm trying to tell him, you know, what I want to fix, he it was it's, fixed. It's already fixed. So, anyway. Oh, my God. Um, That's got to be pretty intimidating. Well, did that, did I tell that get you. in your head a bit? Yeah. It did. You know, it did, or I, it didn't as much as I thought it would. When I first walked in, you know, I thought, here I am holding a banjo. And there's Scott Vestal. What what is wrong? Why am I? Why did I think this was a good yeah, idea? Yeah, something's backwards here. Yeah, but you know he's such a good guy. He's uh -huh. such a you know humble guy. After just a little while, it didn't matter, you know. Hmm. And then he said, you know, and he said, and I think he was sincere saying it, you know, that he liked what I was playing, and and I, you know, he called me, you know, would introduce me to players and other people and say he's a you know really good banjo player, and I would, you know, that's still sort of. I don't I'm not sure I believe it, but I really appreciate him saying it. It's nice know? to hear. It's, yeah. it's good to have a memory of yeah. that coming out of his mouth. That's Abs cool. Absolutely. So um 
Anyway, That's really cool. Yeah, it, it 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 was not as scary as I thought it was going to be after a little while. Was there anything banjo specific that you recall him uh, other than like the the edits that you just mentioned? Was there actual playing advice that he that he gave you on anything? Or or was he not, pretty hands off? Not a whole lot other than every now and then, you know, I would say, you know, I'm not sure I really like that. And if he would tell me he really did like it, I would listen to it again, and I'd think, yeah, you know, maybe he's right. It's not. It actually is okay. okay. Uh, so here, here, this this is a little secret. I'm not sure I've told many people about this, but I had gone up. This is 2001, in about January, I think, or February of 2001. I'd gone up to his studio mm-hmm. and had recorded the whole the whole project, you know. So I was already back home in Florida, and he was doing final mixes, you know, and sending things to me to listen to and you know i got back home and i'm listening to the mixes and i heard it was on the first the, the opening cut of the of the record actually called purple valley blues and on on one of the banjo solos i heard you know as i i don't know why it took me this long to hear it but you know after i'm already back home in florida i heard there was one note that was just a little that was sort of muffled you know like i just didn't fret it cleanly yeah. or something you know and I told him, and he looked, you know, like in other other passes I'd made, and I hadn't played it the same way every time, so there wasn't something that he not could, a good edit spot that he could yeah. edit that way. So he ended up playing. I don't remember how long, not very long, but a tiny little section oh, man. of banjo just to keep me from driving, you know, and played the same notes that I played, yeah. except hit that one cleanly. Uh-huh. To keep me from driving from Florida all the way back to to Nashville to, to fix recut it the or four notes, yeah. So I could, I guess, maybe I could have gone into another studio, you know, in Florida and done that. But uh, anyway, <laughs> it was easier for him to do that, and he did it. And I can, I think I know where it is, but when I listen to the record, I can't hear it. I mean, he did such a great job. Not only the notes, but he had to uh, really alter, you know, work on the tone of the banjo right. because because the banjo that I had brought up there that I played on that cut was back in Florida with me. Yeah, so he used his, and they sounded different. And I don't remember if he had to, you know, if he maybe had to change the setup of his, of his banjo, or if he just did it with EQ, EQ or what. But yeah. he said, he said that's what he spent most of the time on. Oh, I fix, bet. was yeah. just matching the tone yeah. so that it would blend. So anyway, <laughs> that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, that was pretty funny. I'm a, I'm a little embarrassed that I couldn't hit that one note, but you know, just right. You could have. <laughs> you could have. I could have if I'd had another chance. But dang right. it. Anyway, and I'm I'm imagining in in those years, you getting sent mixes means like getting a CD in the mail, right? It's not any of this uh, Dropbox <sighs> business where you can just go back and forth instantly. You know, you're probably right. That's probably exactly what it was. <laughs> it probably was mailing me a CD. It was a yeah. lot more. Or, of a- yeah, probably was a CD. I'm trying to remember if it was a cassette tape. I think it was a CD at least. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Thank you. 
Folks, we are in a golden age of online instrument instruction, and at the top of that world is Peghead Nation. Peghead Nation has streaming video courses in banjo, guitar, mandolin, fiddle, dobro, upright bass, and ukulele, so you can learn bluegrass, old time, and plenty of other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in all of Roots Music. Check out the courses they have and this is just for banjo you could get beginning or bluegrass banjo with bill evans Clawhammer banjo with evie laden wade ward style banjo with bruce molsky the banjo according to danny barnes and contemporary bluegrass banjo with wes corbett each of those courses include high quality video lessons downloadable notation and tab play along tracks and plenty of tunes and songs to play and the best thing yet is you're going to get your first month free just by being a listener of this show. So go to pegheadnation.com and use promo code PICKYFINGERS at checkout and claim your free month of the best instruction out there. And if you find yourself needing a banjo or accessories to get ready for those Peghead Nation courses, I highly recommend you check out Elderly Instruments, which is the world's most trusted source of new used and vintage stringed instruments, including banjos, guitars, violins, mandolins, ukuleles, all that stuff. They're going to have the best instruments you can find anywhere. And we're talking everything from the more affordable instruments for people starting out on up through the most highly sought after vintage instruments. Elderly Instruments has been family owned since 1972. And if you can't make it to their Lansing, Michigan showroom, you can see their full selection at elderly.com or give them a call at 517-372-7880 for some professional advice on all of your banjo and other stringed instrument needs. And you know what all these stringed instruments have in common? They all sound better with GHS Strings. GHS Strings is another sponsor of the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast, and I'm proud to say they have been made in Battle Creek, Michigan since 1974. And if you don't want to take my word for it, maybe you'll believe such people as J.D. Crow, Sonny Osborne, and Bela Fleck, just a few of the many, many users of GHS Strings. So go check them out, ghsstrings.com. They have a wide selection of gauged sets so that no matter what you're looking for, you'll be able to find something there. You write a fair bit of original material, right? That you've put on your albums? I write some, yeah. So that's the other thing I try to do when I do an album is to have some original stuff. I've never had enough to come up with a full album of original stuff mm-hmm. but i usually try to get you know at least half if i can or close to that as many as i've written yeah. at least that i think are worthwhile I'll, I'll put those on the record because i think that uh you know if you do one that's an original tune you wrote it you're the only one who's recorded you know chances are that's the best recorded version of it uh-huh <laughs> at least that's my hope yeah. it's the only recorded version so hopefully it's the best one uh <laughs> yeah, I mean, it might be nice if somebody Im- improved on it eventually. But oh, yeah, that would be great. Kind of flattering. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so talk about like your approach when you are composing. Do you have a, do you have a certain way that you come up with banjo tunes or, or so take some, us through that? A lot of times it's a little bit accidental, mm-hmm. I think. If I really come up with something that sounds new to my ear, I can think of a, a few times in particular where uh, I'm I'm 
you know, practicing sitting on the back porch. Mm-hmm. I can think of one, you know, sitting on the back porch. I'm watching my kids play in the yard. I played this one on the show last right. night. Um, and I'm, I'm messing, you know, I've gotten down into detuning and I'm messing with uh, things like first things like Ruben and then some flex stuff, you know, it's Snakes Alive and it's uh, Daybreak and, and uh, tunes like that. And then I just start noodling a little bit and finding positions that sort of make sense to me or sort of sound musical and eventually it ends up turning into a tune. So that was uh, for that particular instance that I'm thinking of, it was a tune called Tyler and Amanda, named it after my kids. So that's one. Um, an, another another time that I remember uh, on vacation in North Carolina in the mountains, mm-hmm. sitting on the porch, watching the creek, you know, run by at the at the bottom of the yard, and and I'm playing around. I'm in sea tuning, playing around with tunes like uh, you know Farewell Blues and Home Sweet Home and Sea Rock City, the Fleck tune. Yeah, and I start you know just by accident stumble upon some little chord shape and I play a roll over it that sounds sort of cool and start fleshing that idea out and then add a few more ideas and that one in particular I remember that uh, that's a tune called Ruby Falls Falls is oh, right yeah. next to Rock City. Okay. So they're the and and I had actually just visited both of those places. That's cool. You know, we were on vacation and we had I'd seen the signs for Rock City since I was a kid and Ruby Falls. So we had gone to visit both Rock City and Ruby Falls. So then a, a few days later, I'm on the porch in North Carolina playing the Rock City tune because I'm inspired because I just went there. 
Uh, and then I think, what about Ruby Falls? So, yeah. And that's so I start thinking of it. Um, and that, the Rock City, Flex Rock City tune was the inspiration. It's not that it's very much, it doesn't really sound like the Ruby Falls that I wrote. Uh, but I thought, you know, I came up, I think maybe I came up with the intro, the little intro first. Um, and then I thought, eh, maybe let's make it a three-parter too, you know. Oh, cool. An A, B, and a C part. So yeah. I did that too, came up with three, you know, pretty different sounding parts that I put together that make sense to me. Um, Do you find that you, so especially something, I guess this is a good example, especially something like that, uh, where there are three distinct parts to it, do you write that all in one sitting? Because I am guilty as all get out for finding maybe really cool musical ideas uh-huh. that, that deserve to become a tune. But now I just have a whole bunch of ideas <laughs> sitting around and I can never quite tie the bow on it. Uh-huh. Um, so do you have advice for somebody like yeah. me who might <laughs> might, need, might need help completing these tunes? Yeah. So I have, I think I still have a lot of pieces of tunes and songs uh-huh. rolling around in my head too. I guess the advice would be record it. Mm-hmm. You know, if you've got some pieces, if you've come up with something that you think it sounds pretty good, uh, record it so you don't forget it. Uh, might yeah. be even smart to video record it right. so you can remember where the heck you put your fingers if it's if it's anything, you know, way different or, or weird or something from what you might usually do. I guess that would be the one advice. And I say that because yeah. I have a lot of things that I – wished i had remembered and okay. i wasn't smarter to for recording so they're gone forever gone forever what, what, <laughs> one thing that happened to me a lot and still does is you lie down to go to sleep at night oh you're almost asleep your head's really clear you're really relaxed and a tune or a song or something will start popping into your head i don't know if this happens to you but mm-hmm. and sometimes it's like like nearly a finished product, you know, like the whole thing, you know, you just, you just listen to it. You start at the beginning and the whole thing's playing through your head and it's new. It's not something you've heard before. If you're smart, you'll get up and you'll record it or you'll write down the words or something. If you're not, which is the way I am most of the time, yeah. I'll think I'll run over it and I'll think about it over and two or three times in my head. And I'm really tired and I'll think, oh, I'm so tired. I got to go to sleep. I'll remember this tomorrow. <laughs> Never. No. It's, by the time tomorrow comes, it's completely gone. So there was one time at least that I that I did uh wake up and write one down like that. Uh so it's a it's a song that's on the Tales from the Swamp record that sort of ended up, you know, inspiring the cover of that record too, but uh a friend of mine, uh banjo player, mainland player named Joe Smith, uh who I knew lived in Jacksonville and I used to jam with him on, on occasion. When he told me the story at the urging of another friend who said, you know, get Joe to tell you about the time he saw the skunk ape. So I don't know if you've ever heard of the skunk ape. No, but we don't have those in Michigan. It must be a Florida thing. <laughs> or you haven't seen him yet. So down in, in the Everglades, there's long been this, uh, you know, tales of the sighting of the skunk ape, which mm. is like the Everglades version of Bigfoot. Yeah. You know, it's a big, hairy uh, beast, but, you know, completely covered in hair, and it yeah. smells terrible. Uh-huh. Is this why it's where it got its name, it's the skunk ape. So, anyway, Joe told me about, you know, he worked in South Florida. He worked for the phone company or electric company or something. So, he's out working on, you know, lines and, and power poles. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, is up on the pole and he sees this thing walk across the road 
and he was very serious. I mean, he was not joking a bit. Yeah. You know, and he said, I don't know what it was. I definitely saw it. He says it definitely wasn't a bear. Uh, but anyway, he told me, told me the whole story. And it was just one very long later, just a few days later, I think after that, that I'm lying in bed one night. <laughs> and, uh, and that story that he told me in a song form sort of came to me. Wow. And it was one of those rare times where I got up and wrote it down. So I wrote down, uh, what is it, four verses maybe, or however many it is, to, uh, to this tune in you know, like 10, 15 minutes. Oh, that's so cool. Um, and then, you know, a few days later, I, I think I maybe had already had a little bit of a tune that I was working on that sort of made sense to go with it. And I sort of fleshed it out and put those two things together. Oh, cool. Um, and that's what ended up being that it's Joe meets the skunk ape that's on the Tales from the Swamp record. Um, I, I, so. I'm, I'm so happy to hear that your uh, mind over body control to get yourself out of bed <laughs> was productive for you and you have something to show for it because, yeah. you know. You deserve it. That was probably difficult. <laughs> it was. <laughs> uh, Let's so. talk about the first time you remember hearing or maybe at least getting your hands on a, a pre-war banjo and oh, when when gosh. that uh, bug hit you. I'll have to, I may have to think about that one for a few minutes. And I honestly, I'm not sure I know what the first, I don't know if I remember the first pre-war banjo that I got a hold of. Well, I guess um, let me ask it a different way. When, I mean, are you uh, acknowledging that you have since been bitten with that bug to be interested in uh, I, these these vintage instruments? I would acknowledge that. Uh, yes. <laughs> how do you think that came about? You know, if you're around banjo players very long, you know, most of the time they want to talk about the old ones. Mm -hmm. um, and if you get a hold of, of, of a good old one, it starts to make sense. Now, there are really some great new banjos being made. There yeah. really are, who sound great, look great, play great. But I, I sort of like this, <laughs> the look and the feel and the, uh, not the, not even always the feel as much, the smell of yeah. the old musty banjos, you uh -huh. know. Uh, I have a studio room at home and I keep, you know, all the instruments in there under, a, under a, an extra lock, you know, in the house. And the whole room sort of smells like old instruments. Oh, that's cool. Uh, yeah. Which I, you know, I, I'm sure to some people, if they walk in there, they think, ah, oh, what does it smell? It smells like basement. Yeah. <laughs> you know? But when I walk in there, I, I think, oh, what a smell. It's kind of like an so old bookstore or something yeah. like that. Just Yeah. Yeah. So my fiance actually, is, she's a... She's a horse girl. She loves horses and has horses and all. Uh -huh. So when I go to the barn, I think, yeah, it smells like horse poop. <laughs> and she goes to the barn and she's like, ah, horse poop. Right. <laughs> so at least at least you can relate uh, yeah. on so, some level. Not that banjos are anything like horse poop. I don't think that, but. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so I have a handful of, of older ones now. I have, uh, so this one here that I play that, that I've played mostly for the last six or seven years or so it's a it's an old it's a 1934 tb1 pot before i got a hold of it i bought it from jim mills a few years back and it, someone had cut the rim and put a, a huber ring into it mm -hmm. and then robin smith built this neck for me and i really like the sound of it and like the feel of it um but would you say this is your i'm uh, sorry i didn't mean to interrupt there yeah this is my main one this has been okay. my main one for uh, ever since I got it, which has been probably six or seven years at least, I have several old uh, 11s. Uh, one of those in particular I had uh, 
It does not have a tone ring. It's got the hoop, just yeah. just the original hoop. And had Robin Smith build me a neck for that one too, which is a really cool look and feel and neck. Um, and he made it look, you know, it, it looks the part. It looks it has the art, the eleven look about it. Yeah. Um, but it's also got the tunneled fifth and everything, and it's just oh, a wow. really slick uh, neck. And the banjo, you know, sounds great without a tone ring. Uh-huh. You know, it sounds a little bit different than one with the tone ring, but it really sounds great. Yeah, um, I love it, and I've actually got an, one that I just bought about uh, six months or so ago. It's a 1937 TB7. Oh wow! Yeah, so top tension, really cool. Yeah, so uh, with the Randy Woodneck. So that one, I I like the sound of it, and and it's a it's so shiny, it looks brand new. It's huh. it's nearly immaculate. Um, I'm not quite used to the neck yet. It's got more of the standard neck, so it's a lot narrower narrower than this one that I'm that I've really been used to for a long time. Yeah. So I'm still trying to decide to build another neck. You know, Is there, the neck, but. so you really dig those tunneled fifth string I necks? I do. Yeah. So, um, you know, many years ago in the, probably around 96 or so, I had run, had run into Scott Vestal at, um, it was probably at IBMA this time. And he was playing the stealth, mm-hmm. you know, his stealth banjo already with that tunneled fifth neck. Um, and he let me play it, and I just really loved the feel of the neck. It just felt right. so sleek and uh, just felt good to my hand. So my friend, who was the bass player I was telling you about, he was a furniture salesman. Mm-hmm. Bottom line, he was a salesman. So, so And he knew Scott, and he would started talking to me and said, man, you should you should make those banjos and sell them. You know, people, people would buy those. And... Scott thought, yeah, well, maybe, you know, and I, and I had already talked to him. I said, man, I really love that. You know, if you, you know, if you decide to start making them or something, let me know. I want one. So the original idea was he was going to have someone make the necks, stealth neck to put on, you know, your pot. Just whatever. Yeah. Um, So I saved up a little money and had bought the parts for a pot, you know, first quality parts and all Mm -hmm. um, and called Scott about it. And he said, okay. He said, but, you know, now we decided we've been making the whole banjos. He said, just send me the parts and I'll have them put the whole thing together. So I sent it And was that Robin that was building those? So, you know, it was. I think the first two were somebody else, if I remember this right. So Scott's was made by, uh, I think it was Jim Yarbrough out in Texas, the one that he played at least early on for a long time. Then he had somebody else in Nashville, I think, made the first couple um, and then he had it. Then he was having a made at Marty Lanham's shop, but it was Robin working at Marty Lanham's oh, shop okay. building those. And then you know eventually Robin struck out on his own and built them. You know, thereafter built I don't know how many, but all of them right. after that. And then yeah. and so I had, you know, I had that first banjo of his, and I started playing that, and I had a a couple of them because UPS broke two of the necks in a row for me so that first banjo i got a hold of it it was a little buzz somewhere in the neck and i could not figure it out couldn't couldn't make it go away somehow it had you know skipped gotten by and got to me that way so i sent it back to back up there to the shop and i'm sure it was robin who probably readjusted it and fixed it yeah. shipped it back and I, ups brought me the box i opened the box and the net peg had it snapped off right here so i called him and said oh you're not gonna believe this I was talking to Marty Lanham at the time, and uh, he said, okay, okay, we'll, we'll make you another one. So, you know, two or three months later, they built me another neck, 
shipped it back down to me. I opened the box, and UPS had snapped the peg head off twice in a row. And they're just shipping you the neck? No, no, it was a banjo. Okay. They put the whole thing together. I was going to say that's like... Yeah, it was the whole thing together, but UPS, whatever they did, they'd broken two of them. So I called Marty again. I said, you're not going to believe this. And he felt sort of sorry for me. Uh, And he said, well, I'll tell you what, I've got this neck, you know, one of those necks that I had built for myself. And it's got my logo on it, the Nashville Guitar Company logo over a flat pick inlaid at the fifth fret. You know, they they had no inlays. Uh, right on, on them, but he had put this on his one. So he said, I'll tell you what, I'm going to send you that one right now. So you've got one and then we'll work on the other one, uh, on the new replacement. So uh-huh. anyway, did that. So it eventually up, worked out. <laughs> it eventually worked out. And then I ended up with extra banjos cause I had extra necks. I had, you know, the, the new one, the one I got from Marty that was originally his, and then a couple broken ones that ended up yeah. getting repaired. So I ended up with, you know, at least four, Four of those kind of banjos, I put more pots and put one on a on an old eleven pot that I have at home too. So, did I hear <laughs> you say the phrase "extra banjos"? Because I'm not familiar with this uh, concept. But uh, and I didn't expect it from you. Multiple, maybe it's a better <laughs> yeah, word. Okay. Not there's yeah, not more extras. more banjos than you expected. Bon- bonus banjos. Yes, bonus banjos. That's a that's a better way to phrase that. You're right. <laughs> Uh, I've I've heard your name associated with uh, banjothon. Are you, do you actually have something to do with organizing that and putting it together, or uh, so? What, what, what is that? No, I don't really have. Uh, other than knowing the guys who do it, I don't mm. really have anything to putting it to putting it together. I do. Um, I, I really just went to banjothon for the first time five or six years ago. I sort of heard rumors about it, mm-hmm. and I had. Uh, you know, a friend or two in Florida who'd been there. I have uh, one friend in particular who went there a lot, a guy who has a lot of banjos, a lot of old banjos. He owns uh, seven pre-war flatheads, including four Granadas. Um, wow. Um, the, fir- the first time I went to the Banjothon, which I think was probably about, what year is this? It was probably about 2017, I think. I took a lot of pictures and wrote a story for Banjo Newsletter mm-hmm. um, all about it. You know, took a lot of great pictures of the old banjos. I mean, it's a, it's a, you know, they do it in the Crown Plaza in Knoxville is where they were doing it then at least. And, um, you know, it's a big, you know, hotel ballroom yeah. full of old instruments. You know, the criteria for bringing a banjo into that room, is just, it's got to be either a pre-war flathead or a pre-war original five string. So... Um, that and then then they expanded it to include lores, um, oh. and then they expanded it a little later to include pre-war martins. Okay, so it's a pretty impressive room full so of instruments. So now it's just a holy grail of bluegrass type of yeah, scene. It is so wow, you know, hundreds. I don't know hundreds, but definitely over a hundred. You know, great old instruments. Anyway, so um, I, I wrote the story for Banjo Newsletter. So then people. Uh, sort of sort of asking me questions and tracking me down and emailing me about it you know because that was really it's sort of always been a little bit of a clandestine operation Mm -hmm. you know it's sort of if you're in the know you know and if you're it's not really a public thing for a couple reasons am i allowed to publish this episode with you with you telling me this or uh... i think so okay (laughs) i can ask mike maybe if he cares but i think it's probably all right but you sort of have to you know you sort of have to have the the banjo 
uh, it's to, invite only, so that kind of says it all. Yeah, right. So you sort of have to have the the uh, the ticket to get in. Right. So anyway, I I started getting questions. So then I sort of worked with with Mike to to you know forward the questions to him, and mm-hmm. and I think I put I did. I think I put together a, a little web page, maybe on my site about it or something, just to help him out. Okay. You know, just like to offer the information that he could refer people to. Let's talk about your your teaching. You know, we're here at Midwest Banjo Camp, mm-hmm. and I know you teach at uh, at least one other camp pretty regularly. Yeah. And I've definitely heard some good feedback about how supportive and encouraging and patient you are, especially with like the, the beginner students. So maybe yeah. talk a little bit about that, about what you think are the important things that you're able to share with, um, I mean, I guess I'm asking about beginning students, but, yeah. you know, just take it wherever you, you okay. want from there about yeah. teaching. Okay. Well, um, yeah, so I've been teaching, you know, I've taught, I've taught just, you know, a little bit off and on since I really was about 17 years old. I mm-hmm. first started working in that same music store where I took my four lessons. Okay. You know, after a couple of years, I came back and I taught lessons for a little while, um, you know, while I was still in high school. And then I did it just a little bit off and on. But then a few years back, I started doing it more regularly, you know, uh, at home, just private students, um, just a a few a week. Um, And then I was asked to do the Swanee Banjo Camp. Um, They needed uh, someone mainly to teach uh, beginner students. Uh, Chuck Levy was running running the camp with Ken Perlman. They were running it together back then. And they asked me to come and do the beginners. And that was uh, probably eight eight or nine years ago. I can't remember exactly when, something like eight, nine, ten years ago. So I've been doing it every, every year since there at Swanee Camp. And then Ken invited me up here to Midwest Camp for this year too. So what I try to do, I mean, it was a long time ago that I was starting, you know, I was tr- trying to learn from the beginning, but I still remember what it was like. And I remember what it was like. Uh, maybe part of the reason I remember it so well is because I didn't have a teacher and I was trying to figure things out on my own. You know, I had, yeah. I had a couple teachers off and on. Um, and like I was saying, you know, some of the, when I had, um, like the guitar player at the local music store who taught me not all that much about banjo, but just told me clear ringing tones, right. which in that one little phrase, uh, eventually, you know, after I worked on it for a while, made such a difference in my playing. Yeah. And I went to a workshop with Alan and he talked about, you know, having your right, your right arm relaxed and falling in a, in a nice, uh, relaxed spot on the banjo. And he talked about trying to play the strings, you know, each string with each pick the same distance from the bridge. So you could reproduce the same type of tone from mm-hmm. string to string. Um, and just little things like that, that maybe it's something that doesn't make it into a book. You know, if you're trying to learn from the book, you know, a lot of times the book is going to have music, tablature, and notes. Um, maybe it's got, you know, telling you which finger to use or something like that. But yeah. it doesn't tell you things like, you know, be sure you're hitting, the, you know, each of the strings, you know the same distance from the bridge so you have a similar tone on the first string as you do on the third string and yeah. and things like that so i tried to try to think of um not just the notes uh try to get people to listen to what they're playing not just not just how the notes flow together to make a song but also how 
each individual note sounds, the tone and the tone of the banjo yeah. and the overall feel of the thing is what I try to do. And that's not always what students want to hear, what beginner students especially hmm. maybe want to hear. You know, you want to play a song really fast. Yeah. And really fast, ideally, is what you want to do. Right. So anyway, I try to think of those little extra things like that that maybe you wouldn't uh, learn that you wouldn't get somewhere else. Yeah. You know. Cool. Uh, I, you already mentioned, uh, you know, quite a few details about this, uh, banjo of yours, but take us through if there's any other equipment that you really like, whether it's, uh, picks, banjo heads or oh, like, okay. setup things. We, we have plenty of banjo nerds listening, so yeah. they, they don't mind getting into the, the nitty gritty details. <laughs> okay. Well, for, uh, so for the banjo heads, I like the white ones. This is just the usual Remo head. I the have Remo no heads. idea if it's, uh, you know, they talk about the pre-EPA ones that have extra frosting and that kind of thing. Yeah. I don't think it's one of those. Um, I like the way it sounds on this banjo. I usually stick with the Remos. Okay. Um, only because I, I also I don't change them very often. I know some people I heard <laughs> Gabe Hirschfeld yesterday was talking about, gosh, this head is so old. I need to change this head. It sounds terrible. Oh, he, And I'm thinking... <laughs> Gosh, this one's been on here for probably ten years or so, and I got no plans of ever changing it. So for once, I break it. For what it's worth, <laughs> I, I called him out on that too. I'm, I'm like, I've I've heard you got to just let them settle in. He's like, you know, that's right. But that particular one, apparently, he had tightened and loosened a lot, adjusting oh, okay. it, so and it he thought it really like lost any of the. So he yeah. he had an excuse. But okay, I, okay, I called him on that. <laughs> well, I've I've heard guys, and I think even Charlie Cushman talks about you know just. Just uh, changing out for a new head, and maybe it's a good deal. I'm, maybe I'm just too lazy. I don't <laughs> yeah. know. Could be that too. Um, so this this pot, like I said, it's a 34 pot. This ring is in uh, this one that I happen to be playing right now that I do like a lot. Um, someone had put the Huber ring. It's not the latest, his latest version. It's the one before that, I think, and I honestly can't remember the name of it now. But everyone who's listening probably knows. Yeah. Um, this uh, armrest that I have on here, I've taken off the original equipment armrest, and I've put uh, one of Tom Neckville's armrests on here. It's it's uh, this wooden beveled armrest. The wood just feels so much nicer on your arm than the metal, and the, the angle, for me, the angle uh, is just perfect. I have the same one. Yeah, it's, it's so great. It's really comfortable. I love it. And especially up here in Michigan when you might have outdoor gigs in cooler weather, Oh yeah, the metal doesn't you know you stick to your arm. Stick to your arm, or just get cold. You <laughs> yeah. know, the, all the metal parts get really cold yeah. in, in the weather, and it's nice when it doesn't transfer right into your arm when you're trying to play. So mm -hmm. it's that's a, that's an extra benefit for yeah. for the wooden armrest. Yeah. So this, uh, you know, the neck on this banjo uh, said before, I guess it's one that Robin Smith Robin Smith had built for me um, uh, not long after I bought the banjo. It's the stealth banjo scale, which is actually a guitar scale. So it's a little bit shorter than the mm -hmm. usual banjo scale. This one is actually a little bit wider than the stealth necks were. It also has the tunneled fifth. And this one, of course, has, uh, you know, the Reno pattern inlay on it. And I think what I do, I have special. So I also had him uh, move the heel stop just a little further back. To let the capo, you know, if you oh. let the capo stuck on your neck, to get it a little further out of the way for those times where you're trying to get to the first fret. And also I did <laughs> one other thing that, that Robin used to do for me. He sort of, he argued with me a little bit, but but he did it. <laughs> um, 
on the fifth string spikes, I have him install those and they're pointing up. Oh. Which to me makes great sense because when you hit the fifth string, you're always hitting a downstroke right. on that string. Uh, I know I used to have a, the occasion where I would hit a downstroke on the fifth string and the string would pop out from under the, the oh, spike. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. Um, it, it didn't happen much, but it happened occasionally. And it just sort of made sense to me. Well, if you point it up, you're always going to be just yeah, There's no way it. it would happen. Yeah. Right. So, and it's never popped out of there. So, anyway. Mission uh, accomplished, yeah. Yeah. So, that's the one, uh, one of the other maybe uh, odd things that I like to like to have on the on the neck um and the rest of this banjo is pretty you know all old parts pre-war pre-war parts i do have um so you see i've got this condenser mic that's an old donnell mini flex mic which i have wired in stereo to a magnetic pickup that's under the bridge i think it's one of those old jones pickups um which i use used occasionally not all that much but sometimes um the most recent thing I put on here, which I've used, I uh, haven't had it long enough to use it a whole lot, but I have this, uh, you can see under the head here behind the bridge, that's a McIntyre acoustic feather oh, yeah. okay. pickup. And what I've been using that uh, with is the Tone Dexter. I don't know if you've seen that. Oh, yeah. They're, they're yeah. really impressive. Yeah. So, you know, with the Tone Dexter, you plug in the pickup, that transducer pickup, and you plug in a microphone, you play some samples of your instrument into the tone dexter and somehow it creates an image that then you can pretty pretty well you know it's not perfect but it's a, about the best uh, reproduced pickup sound for a banjo that i've heard yet i think yeah um you know from just the pickup and the other thing i did with that after i got that and and like the way it sounded was i bought a wireless rig so oh, cool so you can plug the uh the little wireless dongle into your jack there and walk around with the banjo without tripping on a cord. Yeah, uh, that's nice. Which is pretty cool too. So I've got to use that just a couple of times so far, but I like it. Uh, I've noticed, so uh, another one of my recent interviews was uh, a guy who, he's like a Don Reno disciple mm -hmm. uh, on up to the way that he holds his banjo way up here like Don Reno does. I've noticed you're kind of the opposite. You yeah. almost have like a, a Jimmy Page kind of thing going on. <laughs> is is there a reason for that, or that's just where it ended up? Yeah, so uh, I would say a little bit of an Alan Mundy clone. Oh. If you watch Alan's banjo, it's pretty low. And yeah. actually, I do that. I talked about that, you know, going to that workshop with him mm -hmm. many years ago. And I think he talked about it this way. You know, just hang your arm, hang your arms loosely by your sides like a wet rag, you know, as relaxed as they can be. And then put the banjo hang the strap uh you know adjust the strap so that the banjo hangs low enough that if you just flop your hand over to the you know that your hand is going to fall in a picking where position it needs of, to be yeah. yeah over the bridge interesting and uh yeah and for, uh, obviously no one can see you but your your elbow is basically straight pretty you know it's not locked but like yeah. there's not much bend to it pretty that, straight that's how low it, yeah. it is and you know for you yeah pretty okay. straight so it, it really relaxes the tension you know all the all these tendons and the muscles that work your fingers are up here in your forearm so um it feels better to me. Yeah. It makes me feel much more relaxed. You you don't find it adding difficulty for left hand, or do you angle the neck up quite a bit? Or you, I mean, I no. imagine at this point you're just used to it. So. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> to me, um, 
you know, it feels it little feels a little more relaxed on the left side too. Wow. You know, okay. Not as much bend in the elbow and might have to experiment with that. Yeah, feels interesting. Feels, feels better on both sides to me. Uh, do we want to pick a tune? Uh, sure. Yeah, let's try want. it. Gosh, wonder which one. It was it was your uh, it was your threat. So I'll. I'll I said make that. Good on it. Yeah. Did I say that? Yeah. Uh, do you ever play something like the Temperance Reel or? Yeah. Yeah. We could try that one. Is that one? Yeah, sure. Okay. Why don't you, why don't you start it off? Okay. Uh, Semi peppy? Sure. Okay. Make it warm. Thank you. 
right, good good tune. Uh, somewhat poorly played by me, but uh, good good call nonetheless. And really poorly played by me. Oh, not not true. <laughs> well, thanks a lot for your time, Scott. I appreciate you uh, meeting up with me, and it's been great meeting you here at camp. Thanks, Keith. It's been great to meet you in person and enjoy the talk and the playing. Yeah, likewise. That's going to do it for this episode of the Picky Fingers Banjo Podcast. The song clips you heard in this episode were Driving, Singing, Crying by Scott and Amanda Anderson, On Some Foggy Mountain Top by the Monroe Brothers, Gold Rush by Bill Knopf, and Doc's Riverboat Reel by Alan Mundy, and then three more, all by Scott Anderson, The Purple Valley Blues, Tyler and Amanda, and Ruby Falls. Thank you once again to this episode's Patreon supporter of the show, that's Shad Williams. Head over to patreon.com slash banjo podcast to become a supporter of the show yourself. Don't forget to join me for this month's VIP lounge for very important pickers. That's happening Monday night, September 19th at 7 p.m. Contact the show at pickyfingersbanjopodcast at gmail.com. Come see me at IBMA or the Great Lakes Music Camp. Or just make sure to subscribe to this show on your podcasting app so that uh so that we can stay in touch that way everyone take care i'll see you next time <laughs>